Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Everybody eats. Everybody might not take a supplement. Everybody might not take a drug. Everybody might not exercise. They may not go to yoga class. But the one thing everybody does is they eat. And food is the central thing that will drive your health. So you think about, okay, I like uh, lactose intolerance. You just talked about it. Yeah, that's an obvious one. Maybe they take a little lactate. It helps them get through that desire for that ice cream. Who knows? But a lot of things that start to create problems are things like anxiety, mood disorders. So there's clear correlation to reactions to food and it driving what's called the enteric nervous system, a nervous system that connects your belly to your brain that then alters the way your body is making neurotransmitters, which are the serotonin and dopamine, which makes me feel good and makes me, if I've got enough dopamine, I'm not going to mow through those row of Oreo cookies, right? You know, it's like, you know, I'm going to have one. Now, wait a second. I don't like odd numbers. I think I'm going to have two. And you know, when I always hear the number two, I want to multiply it by two. I think I'll have four. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. And today I talk with Dr. Jim Laval all about food intolerances, food allergies, and your gut health. There is a lot of confusion in this area of food testing. And he has taught me a lot over the years. Jim is an author board-certified clinical nutritionist and expert in the integrative and precision health arena. I can't wait for you to listen. Before we get started, though, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast, and that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness, like infinite allergy labs, which we discussed today. If you are an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, Chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Jim Laval, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Great to be here. Super happy about it. Well, I have heard you lecture several times over the years. And as we were joking off camera before we started recording, when you get on stage, you just absolutely light up. And I always learn so much from you when you lecture and you talk about a huge amount of topics. So today we're going to talk about food allergies, food sensitivities, and I can't wait to hear all your clinical pearls on this. Awesome. Well, it's one of my favorite <laughs> topics. I mean, it's uh, something I actually suffered from from the time I was a young child. So I get the value of it and I think more people need to learn about it. I would agree. And actually, this is a good segue for people who don't know who you are. Why don't you introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of your background what you believe in, what you do, and then we'll jump into the questions. Sure. Uh, so Jim Laval, I'm a clinical pharmacist, board-certified clinical nutritionist. Actually, I have my master's in theology, did uh, diplomat in homeopathic medicine and pharmacy. Started a naturopath school in the state of Ohio. We could never get that one across the finish line, but we sure did work hard at it. And, you know, I spent uh, 38 years in this business of personalized health. I was in it before it was called personalized health. So 1985 is when I got my start. 
taught 17 years college of pharmacy and medicine on natural therapies back when I was the redheaded stepchild and getting kicked around for talking about it. You know, I wrote 20 books, uh, I don't know, 18, 20 ebooks, maybe uh, four databases now. And I'm the co-chair at the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. I'm the chair of the International Peptide Society. And I really, I have had an active clinical practice, uh, one of the largest practices in the country uh, back when I was living in Ohio. And I work on everything from people that are struggling with their everyday issues of why am I gassy? Why am I bloated? Why am I constipated? Why did I gain weight? The super athletes, tactical forces, you name it, I'll jump in and work on it. And uh, you know, I've consulted and written and done a bunch of TV and radio and just love this work because it changed my life when I was 20 years old. I was very fortunate to be in big trouble health-wise when I was 20 and go to somebody who worked on me. And uh, while I was finishing pharmacy school, actually, and that changed my life. It changed my perspective and what I wanted to do with people. I wanted to be more on the proactive side of keeping people well, having them understand their health and develop a lifestyle of health instead of just, hey, you need to take this pill because you got lipids or even on the natural therapy side, you know, hey, take Reggie's rice because you got lipids, right? It's like, let's really get down and understand what's going on with you. Where are these health issues cropping up at? Why? And what do we do about it? And then the biggest thing is, is let's track the results and make sure you're getting where you want to be. Absolutely. hundred percent. And actually one of the big foundations that you talk about all the time and personalized medicine all the time, what we put in our mouth, our food choices, all right. And then our gut health. So as we're talking about food today, I joke a lot. I will say there's a group of people who eat something and they know they shouldn't, right? Like they have ice cream and they immediately get gassy and they know they shouldn't, but they do it anyway. So that's a real obvious one. But what are the other symptoms for people listening today who think to themselves, I don't have any issues with my food? What makes you start to think, you know, that thing you keep complaining about might be due to something you're eating? Yeah. You know, the one thing I always tell people just to, to kind of reinforce this point is everybody eats. Yeah. <laughs> everybody might not take a supplement. Everybody might not take a drug. Everybody might not exercise. They may not go to yoga class. But the one thing everybody does is they eat and food is the central thing that will drive your health. So you think about, okay, I uh, like lactose intolerance. You just talked about it. Yeah, that's an obvious one. Maybe they take a little lactate, helps them get through that desire for that ice cream. Who knows? But a lot of things that start to create problems are things like anxiety, mood disorders. So there's clear correlation to reactions to food and it driving what's called the enteric nervous system, a nervous system that connects your belly to your brain that then alters the way your body is making neurotransmitters, which are the serotonin and dopamine, which makes me feel good and makes me, if I've got enough dopamine, I'm not going to mow through those row of Oreo cookies, right? <laughs> you know, yep. It's like, you know, I'm going to have one. Now, wait a second. I don't like odd numbers. I think I'm going to have two. And you know, when I always hear the number two, I want to multiply it by two. I think I'll have four. And so there's this issue of mood. That's one. It's a biggie. Weight gain. I mean, I have a massive problem with food sensitivities and allergies is weight gain. And people go, what do you mean? I mean, how can a food reaction make that happen? Well, when you trigger inflammation in your body, metabolic inflammation, your joints might not hurt. Oh, which by the way, is another symptom, joint and muscle discomfort. But you may not have that, but because you're kicking up these inflammatory compounds in your body, it starts to turn down your insulin receptors. And that means you're going to start to store fat better. 
who wants to store fat better, right? Not something people want. And then another clear thing it's associated with is development of autoimmune disorders. Huge. So autoimmunity. I mean, and autoimmunity is on the rise and more women end up diagnosed with autoimmune disorders than men. So I think that's something to point out. But at the same time, so don't think about the obvious. Oh, I get a rash. I, I, my belly feels bloated. Those are the obvious signs that you've eaten something wrong, but there's all these other issues. And another big one, cardiovascular disease. So if you're somebody where you're going, why are my lipids so off? I think I eat good. I think I exercise. I'm not overeating. It could be that you're eating something in your food that is triggering that inflammation that ends up creating what's called dyslipidemias, or you know, you're making bad cholesterol family instead of the healthy stuff. And so those are just a few of the things right off the top. Look, cognitive function. How often have you seen this, right? I mean, you've been at this a while, you know. People eat something and all of a sudden they do this. <laughs> Down they go. Right? They're like, oh, yes. yeah, where'd I go? Yeah. Where'd I go? They get fuzzy and foggy headed. And that also happens. And then the last one would be fatigue. So you can feel exhausted and tired after you react to a food. So yes, you could have anaphylaxis if you have a bad food reaction, airway closes down, wheezing, all that kind of stuff. Me as a child, sinus problems, super allergic. My dad was loving me as a guy that worked 16-hour days, seven days a week in the hotels, bringing me a hot fudge sundae or a milkshake every night when he came home. Ugh. Problem was, I was allergic. <laughs> Oops. So I lived on the pink stuff. So I lived on amoxicillin, and I thought that was part of my meal plan. And I thought Dimatap was my dessert, right? The purple stuff. And so that's kind of how I got, for me, I think it's really important that virtually anything going on for you, it can actually be related to food. And, and honestly, it's because we've got a lot of stressors on what causes our gut to become more permeable and reactive. And these foods, mine was, I also had the sinus thing, 100% related to food and skin, I, eczema and acne. And once I figured out the uh, key triggers in the food, poof, all improved significantly, significantly, I should say. I can still trigger myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure you can, right? You're not stress, like, ah, I can take a couple pimples. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> all right, so before I get into the how, I want to get into the what. So what is the difference between a food allergy and a food sensitivity? Yeah, great question. So an allergy is that true hypersensitivity reaction that could be life-threatening. So when you go to your allergist and they do what's called RAS testing, they poke your skin and they see if it creates a welt. That's kind of the traditional RAS IgE test. And so a, a hypersensitivity reaction is a true allergy. And that means that you could have a life-threatening consequence, meaning that your airway shuts down, you wheeze, you get hives, you get real itchy skin. That is an, a hypersensitivity reaction or true allergy. A sensitivity takes longer to take place. So you may not even see the reaction to a food for up to 72 hours after you eat it. And so a sensitivity reaction will not be as dramatic, and it's a different class of reactions. It's called IgG. And so... That is the, the key difference. One is, I don't want to call it milder because, for example, the IgG4 reaction can drive a lot of autoimmune behavior. So I wouldn't necessarily cause, call that 
hey, that's not as dramatic of a reaction. That's kind of bad news too. It's just that it's not that life-threatening anaphylaxis where you need an EpiPen, right? So sensitivity is my gut is reacting. My immune system is getting triggered and turned up. And now I'm starting to express some problems in me, whether it is gas and bloating or maybe autoimmune thyroid, which is definitely on the uptick, maybe joint aches. I mean, I have people coming in telling me, oh, I think I need a hip replacement. We clean up their foods and now all of a sudden they're hiking 10 miles, right? So that's the principal difference between the two. So there's four categories that I look at. I look at IgE and a blood test. IgG4. Now, why that's important is IgG4 goes up because it's trying to protect you from having an IgE reaction. So it's trying to block IgE. And so it's good to look at that, right? Because you want to cut people off from that. And then there's the classical IgG response, which people, you know, in the literature or sometimes experts will say, oh, it doesn't matter. It only, it's only what you're eating. Problem is, there's a lot of literature that's showing when you have higher IgG, it correlates to things like heart disease and weight gain and those kind of things. And then there's an area called C3BD, or what's known as in your immune system, the complement pathway. Why is that important? If that gets turned on, meaning you react to food in that immune marker, that creates a 10,000-fold increase in your IgG vigilance, like how hard that IgG response is going to occur. So I look at all four of those. I mean, I do medical education for infinite allergy labs. They do that test. But there's great allergy tests out there. I'm not going to sit there and say it's the only one, but I happen to think that it's very reproducible and reliable and therefore do education with them. And so that's the big things that people should understand. It's more than just going and getting your, your skin stuck if you're looking for food allergies. And you said a really key thing too, that the food sensitivity can take up to 72 hours to get a reaction, which is, I think, what causes a lot of people, my experience, to be confused about food. So for example, I, dairy, I generally do not eat dairy. It's not my friend. And my symptom was if I ate dairy 48 hours to the minute, I would have 10 out of 10 fatigue, 10 out of 10 fatigue. I would just get slammed with exhaustion when I would eat dairy and I wouldn't eat it that often. And because I didn't eat it that often, I realized I had it took a lot of writing down, backtracking. What had I eaten? What was new? to figure out that was my dairy issue. But as we know, some people eat food, like the joint pain one. They're eating dairy every day. If dairy is a big trigger for their joints, then they're going to have joint pain every day. So then it's hard to know. They're like, well, I always have joint pain, but my, how would I know what food it is? Because I only ate dairy two out of three days, right? right? So it's not that. Yeah. But the problem is, is it overlaps. And look, I have that same issue in Boston. I was at A4M and Peptide Society event teaching this weekend. And you go to Boston, you go to the North End, you're going to have Italian. And <laughs> I grew up Italian, you know, I'm going to enjoy an Italian meal because I don't have hypersensitivity reactions, but little buffalo mozz and some Italian double zero semolina. I come out of there this weekend and literally, and this is a big symptom people don't realize, I was five pounds heavier. Now, I didn't eat five pounds of food. Why was I five pounds heavier? Yeah, inflammation. Because... I ended up, it's flu, yeah, fluid <laughs> retention. Yeah. So, you know, if you're, it's, so if you wake up in the morning and you say you weigh 200 pounds, right? And you go to bed at night and you weigh 205, 
that more than likely you're eating something that's causing you to retain some water. And I use that as a simple marker for people. Do you hold a lot of water if you go away and you start eating food you don't normally eat? You notice yourself, the, the, the scale goes up a bunch. Because you know how much food you'd have to eat to actually gain five pounds? I mean, you know, you couldn't do it in three days, right? But just your cans, you know, when you think about holding water, I always tell people, look at a sponge this dry and then dip it in water and see the difference in how heavy it is. That's how your tissues are. So when you trigger histamine and you trigger these immune responses, your body gets inflamed and you get fluid retention. So pretty interesting. I know this is blowing a lot of minds right now. A lot of people are taking notes going, dang it, this is me. I, this is 100% <laughs> me. I knew it. Are these The tests looking at, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. IgE, IgG, IgG4, complement. Are these, people are going to go, why doesn't my allergist run all of these or my primary care? What's the deal that it's not commonplace when you and I feel like it should be? Yeah, I think it's this, a lot of times I go by this saying, new ideas don't get accepted, old people die. (laughs) (laughs) So it takes time. If you looked at the literature 10 years ago on IgG4 or IgG, it would have pretty much said, well, what are you doing this for? But over the last several years, a lot of literature has been published. So it's going to take time for that to kind of distill into traditional medical care. So, you know, they adopt things a little bit more, I'd say, conservatively. But at the same time, sometimes that works out okay, too, right? Not adopting things that maybe haven't been proven out enough. But so I think that more and more these allergies are getting accepted. I know in continuing medical education, they're talking about the C3 pathway now in terms of a delayed sensitivity reaction. So it's being identified. It will get there, but it's like with all things, I think it just takes time for information to kind of get accepted. It took 30 years for the MRI to get accepted. I, mean, I knew the inventor of the MRI actually and took him a long time. And we look at MRIs now like, hey, you got to get an MRI. Yeah, so commonplace. I have a good friend who she's double board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine and has flipped, switched into functional medicine, right? And so she said, you know, when I was in practice, a GI doctor, she said, this is what I did, the stomach, the intestines, this is what I did. And she said, we, food sensitivities, no way. Like that was a joke. Now, now with her practice, she said, my goodness, I was missing so much. I was missing so much with these patients and it's made a world of difference. Absolutely. And as you said, and she said, she said, once I really started evaluating foods with people, doing testing and reading the literature, she said, I'm so upset at myself for all those years. Yeah. It's one of those things where we get trained. Same thing in pharmacy. Look, I mean, pharmacists are having this epiphany now, a lot of pharmacists moving towards kind of the integrative, functional, regenerative, whatever you want to call it, movement. I just call it the good medicine movement. (laughs) I I mean, it's like, hey, we're trying to help people and be more precise about it and realize that it's not just about a drug. It's not just about a diagnosis. It's like, hey, where's the lifestyle at? Where's the food choice at? All that stuff's important. But I think it's this renaissance of information because, you know, in the 1900s, a lot of pharmaceutical companies were creating a lot of the extractions that we're using today. And uh, we're just now kind of relearning all of this. And I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure Hippocrates was pretty solid on the gut. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I think it's interesting. I think we're just with science now. You know, the first time I saw an electron microscopy of the intestine, I was like, oh, my gosh look how velvety smooth it is if it's healthy. 
look what it looks like when it's permeable, like in an ulcerative colitis case, you can see cracks in it. I mean, when look, we were doing electron microscopies of the intestine in 1970. So, you know, I mean, you just didn't have that type of ability. So as our abilities change, I think all of this distills in. But thank goodness we've got a lot of forward-thinking folks out there, like your gastro, your double-boarded doc, you know, who kind of said, hey, I'm going to look for more from my patient. Right, exactly. And I want to explain to people more, because I know there's naysayers out there who go, I don't think food has any bearing. It goes in and then it goes out. So how does it cause problems to my intestines? How does my immune system get involved? That doesn't seem possible. And I understand. I understand where they're coming from. They're thinking, I chew it up, I swallow, and then yeah. out it goes. I poop. Yeah. Hopefully. 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 Yeah. And on time without any pain. You know, that's the goal, right? So, I mean, it's really interesting. You can have any number of things that can change the epithelial cells of your intestine. So your intestine has one cell layer thick of what's called epithelial cells, and they're tightly connected like this. And in between them is or something called tight junctions. And these tight junctions are responsible for letting things in to get absorbed or not. So you either get rid of it or you utilize it. Now, there's a lot of things that disrupt tight junctions. One of the big ones is chronic stress. We know for a fact that when people are under chronic stress, and you can measure that by a salivary cortisol pattern, urinary cortisol pattern, you can look at even a morning serum cortisol, or you could do something really simple and ask somebody, are you under a lot of stress? <laughs> yes. Oh my God, I'm so overcommitted. I can't sleep at night. So if somebody tells you they're not sleeping well at night, you know they're hyper-aroused and they're under too much stress. So when you're under too much stress, your brain ends up releasing more inflammatory cytokines throughout your body, and especially in the intestine. It's called interleukin-6. And that triggers that epithelial cell to make another switch get turned on uh, called Claudin-2. And the tight junctions that are like this go like that. They break. The gate opens. The gate opens. Now, the gate opens, it's been shown, things like glyphosate, environmental toxins, other things like metals. It could be antibiotic use that's excessive. It could be the use of a PPI that alters the microbiome. It could be metformin. It could be statins. There's several, 24% of the drugs on the market are thought to disrupt the microbiome. So, I mean, that's a big deal. But the bottom line is, is when this breaks, here's what happens. Either you start to get bacteria that get through there and then gets into the circulation. That's called bacterial translocation, meaning I just moved the bacteria out of the neighborhood where it belonged and put it in a neighborhood it doesn't belong. And that creates an immune system response, right? Because your body's going to have an alarm against bacteria where it doesn't belong. That's one. The other thing is now I'm not digesting my foods. My foods aren't getting broken down. Or maybe even if they get broke down, these foods, say, for example, peas. Peas are great. You're meant to chew peas up. But if you have a leaky gut and you're drinking pea protein drinks, which are powderized in your high in lectins, those lectins get through that little gap. And what they do is they attach to something called antigen-presenting cells. I'm presenting this allergen to you, antigen-presenting cells. And so those antigen-presenting cells say, hey, this doesn't belong here. We're going to create an antibody reaction. And now we start to create IgE, IgG, IgG4. And over time, 
D3BD reaction. So, and it, I mean, don't ask me, just look at Alessa Fasano's work at Harvard on leaky gut. So at the most prestigious institutions now, when I started talking about leaky gut back in 1988, people were like, ah, <laughs> yeah, right. You're cute. Jeez. Sure. Reddit stepchild. This guy's nuts. Now we've got a lot of prestigious universities that are pointing to gut permeability as a big problem. Hey, look, if you got COVID, one of the main things that COVID did, and I'm not here to like say, here's the cure for COVID, take probiotics or do a food allergy test. I'm just saying that lots of papers showed that the gut microbiome got disrupted and then that sent an inflammatory signal up to the brain and that that was a cause of some of the long hauler symptoms that were going on. Those papers are published in leading, leading journals that we respect. So just have to realize it's more than I eat, I poop. It's way more than that. It's where is my immune system at? How come all of a sudden my joints are starting to flare up? I never had a problem eating almond, but now when I eat almonds, I start to itch or I notice that I don't feel as good after I eat them. I just feel kind of like somebody turned down the wattage in my body, right? Fatigue. And so that's kind of the mechanism, right? The, the gut barrier loses its integrity. You start to react to certain foods. Some foods are more prone to it, but it could be any food. I remember when I did a, my, a food allergy test and it was like avocado, avocado. I thought I had that on silent. On avocado, coffee, garlic. I'm Italian. Garlic? What are you talking about? Of course, but you eat it every day. And so it can be any food that can create a reaction. Now, the big ones, milk dairy, soy, shellfish, corn, right? Gluten, uh, the big one, right? The monster. And people go, yeah, but I go to Europe and I eat pasta. It doesn't bother me. Well, it's different grain. It's not hybridized and so whatever. But the biggest deal is got to get through that gut that's slow leaky. And once you test and these foods come up positive, depending if it's IgE or IgG, what do you tell them then? So, because obviously a lot of times people are There's a lot of emotional attachment, let's just say, to foods, and they're devastated. So do they have to give the food up forever? And what if 10 or 15 foods come up? What does that indicate to you? So what's the next step? All right, we've tested, we figured out. Right. Now what do we do? These are great questions. I mean, you know, yes, people have a lot of attachment to food. I mean, let's face it, nobody's going to be attached to pasta and and cheese more than an Italian, right? I mean, we're going to do it a pizza. (laughs) No dough, no cheese. So yes, do you have to remove the foods forever? Sometimes if you have an autoimmune disease like celiac or autoimmune thyroiditis or something like that, you may have to avoid gluten altogether because that's even in the literature that that's, I mean, celiac's obvious, but even autoimmune thyroiditis. But in general, you avoid the food for three months. You could then take one of those foods, you retest, obviously you can retest, or if you're doing a elimination diet, you choose one food that you eliminated and then 72 hours later, you can go, what did I have any reaction over those 72 hours? How did I feel? And then you kind of check that box and then you go, okay, maybe I'm going to try another food. I'm going to wait 72 hours. But what you're not going to do is say, I've been eliminating 10 foods. I'm going to try five of them because I've missed (laughs) five of them so bad. Yeah, I'm going to try them all in one day. You know, you can't do that. Usually, the more foods that 
people react to, it kind of shows their gut is more permeable and their immune system is more vulnerable. And so it's always the big struggle. So if I have someone come to me that has 30 foods, I'm sure you've seen that, right? They just light everything up. What I do then is I work on kind of gut repair. Like here, we're going to start, let's pick all the big ones and let's get those out. Let's work on what you have going on with your gut. And then let's retest and let's see, did we make a big difference or not? Typically you do. Things start to calm down when they get rid of the big allergens that are really blowing up their immune system and their gut. They're very reactive. And then that way you can limit it. But you know, if I have people with 10 foods, I, I try not to talk about what I'm taking away. I'm trying to talk to them about what they get to have. And you know, if I can talk to them about what they get to have and give them easy alternatives that taste good, I mean, you know, that's the big one. Like sometimes people are given this list and they go into the store and they see gluten-free. And first of all, you got to watch it's not loaded with sugar and a, a carb bomb, which their blood sugar drops out because they ate it. But they, if it doesn't taste good, that becomes an issue. So we're real big on providing recipes and foods. And we actually even do video boomer busts on people. Like, hey, hey, this here's this product that just came out. Let's taste it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, oh my God. Like, uh, wait, never mind. Cut. Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And, or it's, hey, you know what? This is an amazing cracker. It's gluten free. It's high in fiber. And you know what, guys? It's crunchy. It tastes good. And you can put your almond milk cream cheese on it. And it's going to taste great if you're not sensitive to almonds. So I think those are really important things for people to keep in mind. It's just, in the end, you don't want to punish yourself by doing a test, you want to find creative ways to still enjoy food. And I tell you one thing I love, the biggest reason I like food allergy um, testing, honestly, and the global picture, it gets people thinking more out of the box of not just picking their 10 favorite foods. And they got that set meal plan. Every day I have this. Every morning I have this. Every night I have this. I've got my seven-day rotation. Get out there and get more exposure to different foods, you get a variety of nutrients in your diet that's going to really help you just with your health and your longevity. And I always tell people, remember why we're doing this test in the first place. You feel like crap. <laughs> I don't understand. I thought I turned that off. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Everybody wants me. Uh, which is, see, you're, that, you're just that guy. <laughs> you're just that educator, which is what I love. But what people... I always would say, remember why you did this in the first place, because you felt terrible. I had a patient years ago who was just everything was falling apart, felt terrible. A lot of stuff. Gluten, surprise, surprise, gluten and dairy came up positive for her. She was devastated because her whole diet consisted of wheat based products and then cheese to go on top of it or milk or things like that. So she actually gave up the foods for six weeks. We negotiated on six weeks and on five weeks and the sixth day, she emailed me and said, you're wrong. I'm going to add in something tomorrow at the six-week mark, and I'm not going to notice any difference. So just watch out. And so she did. And then she wrote me and she said, in fact, I'm 10 times worse. She goes, okay, you were right. I am 10 times worse. Six weeks just wasn't long enough. But she said, "I'm a, like all of my symptoms came surging up with a vengeance. And by giving up d gluten and dairy longer, Slowly, slowly. And we worked, of course, on the rest of her health, her gut, oh, sure. et cetera. Right. Sure. Like she felt so much better. But I always remember this. Uh, I laughed this entitled email. You're wrong, Dr. Jones. 
I'm going to eat these foods tomorrow and prove you it's not the food I'm eating and changed your life, changed your life. You know what? Yep. I actually love those learning experiences for people because they learned it from themselves. They kind of went from being a victim, like, hey, I have these reactions. I don't know why it's going on. And then they, with our help, they self-discovered. The craziest one I ever had, a woman came in for insomnia. And I mean, I worked everything up on insomnia. I mean, I understand the nervous system really good. People come to me from all over to get their sleep and their stress under control. I'm not touching it. Nothing's going, it's not working. And I'm going, what is going on? Why isn't this woman, like perimenopause, she was menopausal. I had my OB gym work up her, this one I had my big institute in Ohio. It was like, oh, work up her hormones, you know, dampen the stress during the day, do some deep breathing, you know, hey, acupuncture, nothing. I said, you know what, let's do a food allergy test. Comes back with pork, red hot. Pork? All across the board, pork. I said, pork? Well, when do you eat pork? And she said, oh, every night I have a ham sandwich before I go to bed. <laughs> and it, that from that moment on, which was a lot of years ago, I respected food allergies. I guess the next level up, like, hey, this is a primary thing, not a secondary thing. And people raise their histamine levels in their brain. And histamine is very excitotoxic in the brain. And when your histamine's high, you're not going to sleep. And that's why OTC sleeping pills that you go into the pharmacy and get are antihistamines. But it took that case 20 plus years ago, I think at this point, where I really appreciated it. And it was such a glaring example because I did everything else. I mean, detox, you name it. I did it all. And nothing was touching her. Took the ham sandwich away. Boom. You like me a lot, but <laughs> some people get really attached to their ham sandwich. Well, you said anxiety in the beginning. I've had several patients over the years where once we figured out their food triggers, their anxiety either went away completely or cut down a significant percent. And it just blew their mind. They were obviously life or genetics or other things. Hormones can result in anxiety, but the immune histamine brain on fire manifesting as anxiety in them came up a lot in my patient base. And that for me was huge of, we need to look see what's on the other end of your fork because that, believe it or not, could be a big reason that you feel the way that you do. Yeah, I mean, I spend so much time managing people's hyper arousal. They're just, they're a lot of anxiety. I mean, when you get into panic and PTSD, there's usually like an acute thing or some buried emotion. We got to get them some, you know, EMDR, some kind of therapy, whatever. I mean, it's really important to understand and recognize that sometimes it's emotional. But you know what? You can't separate emotion and stress from physiology ever. And I think that's one of the things that's happened in, in healthcare is we kind of think of anxiety and mood as something that happens from here up. Yeah, in the head only. Yeah, and it really isn't. Not, you know, it is a whole body expression. And we know, for example, for women, women are actually more tuned to fight or flight than men are. And hence, when they get under hyperexcitability and their nervous systems, gender, just kind of gender specific physiology, it makes them more prone to kind of get that anxiety piece up and running. And by default, that means here comes the irritable bowel, which we see a lot of cross correlation between irritable bowel and anxiety, right? And that irritable bowel 
it can progress all the way to a colitis, which under electron microscopy shows a leaky gut. Cracks in the intestines, cracks in the whole system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then what's important, you know, the other one on that is just when your intestinal lining gets compromised, so does the inner lining of the arteries called the endothelium. And so does the blood-brain barrier, which is another one-layer cell barrier that we're totally dependent on for our health. So when the gut's going bad and it's throwing out all these crazy chemical inflammatory compounds, it's attacking those other one-layer barriers. And you mentioned earlier too, cardiovascular lipids. I've seen it with high blood pressure. I've, obviously, there's a lot of causes and reasons for high blood pressure, but over the years of experience, I have seen people cut out whatever the food is. They're thinking, oh, it's stomach. And then they're, we find out their blood pressure drops. Their previously high blood pressure drops down because they've stopped the inflammatory, low-grade inflammatory response that's happening all the time from the food they're eating. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so- when you think that through, so when I trigger that low-grade inflammatory response and it hits my brain, my brain's response is make more adrenaline and noradrenaline. So you make more fight-or-flight hormones. And fight-or-flight hormones do this to your blood vessels. And now I, my heart's got to pump harder and the vessel tension is stiffer and the blood pressure goes up. So I always tell people adopt what I learned a long time ago. Don't take on stress. <laughs> Give. No. No. <laughs> no, no, I don't no, really mean that. Be giving. But at least the first part, don't take yeah. on. Don't take on. Yes. Don't take it on. Learn how to deal with it. Learn how to cope yeah. with it. And uh, that's going to help you out. And probably the biggest thing that I've learned in the last 38 years of working on people is you really do have to work on the gut. What I've learned over the last 20 years, typically you got to work the gut and the brain together. So, you know, work on the foods, work on the gut. But if a person's anxious or saying they're just working 12 hour days and they're feeling overcommitted, you got to help them to bring that stress response down so that the work you're doing on the gut is sticking. I just find it, especially today, well, look, I mean, we know one of the central things that happens when you're under a lot of stress is you don't breathe as deep, right? Thank goodness for this, because this tells me when to breathe. <laughs> Your watch. <laughs> right? Yeah. 12 times a day, I get told it's time to breathe, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty, when you think about it, you know, all kidding aside, it's pretty incredible to think that we actually have apps that are telling us you need to breathe. And I don't think people realize they're not breathing deep. And when you don't breathe deep, you're going to perpetuate that sympathetic nervous system and that gut breaking down. And so, yeah. When people start to do things like deep breathing or box breathing and you know, resetting that nervous system, right? Getting that nervous system back, gut starts getting better. You start not sending that signal to make those tight junctions break. And now you just got to figure out the other things like, well, what do I do to repair this? Like test for your foods. Don't get the reactions in there. But then also, you know, get the nutrients that you need to kind of create that gap to get back to normal. When I lecture, I, uh, Tell people to pull their shoulders down. Stop wearing your shoulders as earrings. Pull your shoulders down and straighten up. And you, in a room full of people listening, it's amazing to watch, to stand up on stage and watch everybody pull their shoulders down, sit up straight, which goes to show even us practitioners are hunched over, breathing shallow, not breathing. Our shoulders are up. Yeah, We all do it. Everybody's guilty. And we all need that reminder. Pull your shoulders down and breathe. Absolutely. And, you know, we're all sitting in front of these laptops more and, and we're, <laughs> We're here, yeah. right? And it kind of puts you there. So it's like, hey, I've got to remember, come back, come back. And it's critical. And like I said at the beginning of our talk, it's really, it's important to 
establish just a, a lifestyle of the choices that you're making. I want to find out foods that are good for me. Testing is a great way to do that. I think you want to expand your diet as much as you can. I think one of the things I've seen over the years is now we're creating such restrictive diets on people that it starts to kind of set them up for failure or they just keep getting more and more sensitive. Well, we've kind of got to reverse that funnel and try to really get that immune system back to where it should be. I mean, look, people were eating Wonder Bread and apple pie and Twinkies 50 years ago. Now, I'm not saying those are great foods, but we've got 50 years of environmental burden and more and more stress. And, you know, this guy ringing when you're in the middle of a podcast, flipping out your (laughs) interview, right? You know, you got all this stuff going on where, you know, the stress hormones go up and the financial stuff. I mean, all these things are loading in in a much greater rate than say, you know, what we had going on 50 years ago, back when I was a young one, you know, and I just think it's critical that you start to identify this and Food is the one thing we all must eat. Food is the one thing. And I think you just answered my last question, which is, given this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast and I am all about the practical and tactical, what are the one or two things you want to leave people with as we finish this out? Yeah, I think the first one is really learn how to manage your stress. I'm not going to tell you, oh, just don't let it bother you because that's just not practical. I mean, there's single parent families, Parents trying to manage children that may be troubled. Parents that are in the sandwich generation taking care of their parents and they still got kids at home. I mean, I lived that for 13 years. My father lived with me and my wife. I mean, so we, I understand that stress. And I think learning to manage that so that you can paint a mosaic of how you live your life with joy. I'm not kidding. That's super important to your immune health. The second thing is, Just do an evaluation. Hey, did I take a bunch of antibiotics when I was a kid? Am I on PPIs? Am I taking a lot of ibuprofen? Am I on oral contraceptives if I'm a woman? These are things that disrupt the microbiome. And then do I feel bloated? Do I feel gassy? Do my joints hurt? Do I ache? Do I feel fuzzy headed? Where's my skin at? What things am I feeling right now that I think are just aging, right? It used to be you're 40 now. You should feel bad. Now it's you're 30 now. You should feel bad. What am I feeling? And then one of the best places you can start is change the kind of things that you're eating that create a more whole foods experience that is going to be beneficial to your immune system. And then, you know, from there, we really can start to get diverse on the other things that can be done. But certainly really understanding your stress, learning about how food influences your health are two really big steps for people. Huge. Oh, this has been fantastic. Ah, Jim, I just appreciate it so much. You are a wealth of knowledge. And of course, I love the way that you explain things. Tell everyone where they can find you, how they can learn more about you, how they can read your books, all the things. Well, jimlaval.com is pretty easy. (laughs) And I don't know how I have so many things about me on the internet, but I think if people search my name on the internet, there's like pages and pages of stuff. And I honestly don't have anything to do with it. I'm like, well, somebody else put something up. 38 years of medicine. I'm an old guy, you know, I'm 62, you know, it's like, what? Post what? How, yeah. Where do I push that button in order to post it? <laughs> oh crap, I just had a misspelling on there. Can I take that back? And then of course, metaboliccode.com is the big project that I have been working on for the last several years. They can read a lot about what we're doing there for root cause medicine. But those are the two big areas. And now uh, my books are listed there and all those good things. Got two books coming out this year. So be looking for that got a sports performance book 
which kind of starts to create these things that we've learned in kind of the medical side and put it more in the med fit side and all my experience with professional athletes. And then kind of a metabolic code 2.0 book, which is about metaflammation and uh, how do we counteract the rages of inflam aging, right? Yeah. We're going to have that longevity we deserve. So that's the big one that's in the edit box right now for me that I'm trying to get done. Oh my gosh. And then the food testing. Everyone's going to ask, where do I get food testing? Yeah, well, I, like I said, I do education for infinite food allergy labs. It's interesting. Insurance, Medicaid, Medicare does cover their test, which is rare. Huge. And insurance also will cover it with the right codes. And infinite food allergy is, a, I think, great reproducible lab. And it goes across all four of those categories we talked about. What I really like about it, it's easy to read. It's not 40 <laughs> pages. It's, hey, look, you can clearly see what you shouldn't be eating. And it even tells you at the end. So look up infinite food allergy testing and take advantage of it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on today. I just absolutely love this as usual. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.